This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, False Prophets and Unwanted Messiahs, examining the White Saviour trope in speculative fiction, part two. Ah, so having dived you know, head first into the concrete, (laughs) as it were, last week. Um, We actually ended up going on quite a long sort of little sort of meandering path to sort of discussing what racism actually is. Um, And obviously that's an incredibly large, (laughs) large fish to tackle. Uh, So we kind of only really sort of scraped the surface of it. Um, But as a result of that, we didn't actually get through all of our discussion about the white saviour trope. Now, we talked about the help last time and a time to kill. And we've got a few more that we kind of want to dissect and look at whether they actually do have white saviour tropes, they do use the white saviour trope, um, or whether that's been mislabeled. Yes, definitely. Um, We do urge you to check out part one first because you know what the the backstory which we kind of info dumped on you last week is actually important to the context yeah yes if you landed on this one go and find part one first yes um it it also is just good you know in terms of understanding the context of where we're coming from um as always we would love to hear from you guys what are your thoughts on this matter do you agree with us do you disagree with us do you think that we've missed something vital um and need to change our perspective please do let us know now without further ado i think we're gonna jump straight into um our next uh topic of discussion which is dawn of justice yeah see okay this was an odd one to put on the list in some respects because really it's about two alpha males who cannot stand the fact that their cities are next to each other or at least that's what it seems to be about (laughs) (laughs) um but you know all joking aside there is a scene in that where superman has done something supermanish um I want to say he's in Brazil at the time, or is he in Mexico? It's it's literally a tiny, tiny part of the film, and you see him sort of in the sky, um, like a god kind of thing, with the sun behind him. Yeah. And he kind of he lands, and so many people, and it's very noticeable that all these people are sort of, you know, Latina. Mm. Um, whatever uh, are all reaching out a hand to touch him kind of thing yeah and it's definitely meant as messianic um imagery yeah i believe yeah definitely and i mean you can understand why they've gone for that imagery because the whole point of of the sort of the superman conflict is he's he's a god or he's being treated like a god um And, look, I haven't seen the movie. To be honest, I wasn't very enamoured with just any of that particular sort of... that film franchise. Um, Not particularly interested. I don't really tend to actually like Batman on his own. I like him in the context of, like, the Justice League, just in the same way that I don't really tend to like Superman alone, but I do kind of like him in the context of the Justice League. 
Um, one of my problems with Superman and the way that he's portrayed, but also the way that he's understood, is that I think a lot of the context behind his character has been removed in recent media. So this yeah. is this is a man who is coded as Jewish. He was created uh, by, I believe it was two Jewish men, yeah. whose names have just escaped me, forgive me. Um, and he's also an immigrant. He's, he's a literal immigrant who has arrived from, from space. His planet has been destroyed. He has arrived in a little ship um, and he has been welcomed in, you know, into this, into a community. And he is different, okay? He's different in a lot of ways. And by being welcomed, by, you know, being treated with kindness and raised with love, he has become a boon to his nation and to the world so this is this is a narrative which is about accepting you know the small the humble those who are desperate those who have lost their homes during a time of great anti-semitism as well um you know with him being coded in that way if not actually being jewish within the narrative itself um so whenever i kind of see this whole kind of superman being framed in this white savior narrative i'm like you guys someone has missed the point and it's either the creators have missed the point in some cases or the viewers have missed the point or both yeah yeah definitely um because i think uh, as the I obviously have not read all the Superman comics. I've only read some of the later ones. Mm. Um, but he kind of, and certainly with the Christopher Reeve films, which, you know, I grew up with, so they've got a special place in my heart, as cheesy as they are. Yeah. But he's billed as this all-American hero. The only thing they could have done to make him more all-American was to make him blonde. Yeah. So, um, you know, blue-eyed, good-looking, tall, you know, very sort of almost Aryan in terms of the perfect physique, etc. Um, black hair. Um, and they, they skate, as Madeline has rightly said, over the whole uh, the Jewish coding thing and the fact that he is clearly an immigrant. They don't play up that. Yeah. They instead treat him more like he is an angel sent from on high to protect Earth, which is a troubling, a troubling trope to follow anyway. Yeah. Um, but that, that specific scene I was talking about in Dawn of Justice was I found it really sort of yick when I was watching it, even though the backdrop of that scene was Lex Luthor sort of foaming at the mouth, talking about how we have a new dawn of gods and, you know, I'm going to show you that they're just men and they're fallible just like everyone else. Mm. The superhero is the new god. I mean, it was supposed to be very affecting, I think. Instead, it just came off as a bit a bit deranged as in in terms of direction and writing in my personal opinion mm. it just didn't really hold water I, I saw what they were going for but because of where they'd chosen to portray this it wasn't like he landed in new york and a bunch of white people started manhandling him and grabbing his tights you know yeah and this is this is the other thing is that in that particular case as well what would have been almost nicer, what I would have liked to see, and something that they would have probably done in the in like in the in the Justice League cartoons, which are brilliant, 
by the way i think i've i've recommended them before they are just so good is that you wouldn't have seen him floating there with people reaching out to touch him you would have seen him helping rebuild stuff but then people like oh can you move those stones over there and he'd be like yep sure thing on it and lifting them and you know helping them rebuild their village as the sort of just bit of manual labor um you would have seen him connecting with people um as someone who worked hard all his life who escaped insurmountable odds who lost everybody he knew and was jettisoned off into the unknown um, relying solely on the kindness of whomever found him that is who he's meant to be at his core and so it really saddens me when people have been like ah let's frame him as this angel no the whole point is that he is a product of the kindness that was shown to him when he was at his weakest and most vulnerable which when you think about when superman was originally created and the fact that it was two jewish guys and he was jewish coded as Mm -hmm. an immigrant and it's like give me your huddled masses yeah it's it's that that essential sort of you know there's there's hope here um you welcome them in they work hard they become a productive member we're inclusive it doesn't matter that we all hold slightly different sort of religious beliefs and things we can all coexist together you know the sort of america the brave and true that that people really want to believe i think yeah and that's what he is meant to represent he's meant to represent the possibility of america you know the possibility of a country which does welcome anyone and all and provides opportunity you know he's the idealistic part of it in the same way that you know steve rogers is supposed to be yeah Um, instead you had Zack snyder turning superman basically into a a gun it's kind of like i want to see two big men hit each other which was essentially what that film was about yeah and look i haven't seen it i really so i can't i can't really judge but I do, really I do feel like, yeah, I do feel like there's, there has been a context which has been missed here. And hell, look, I understand wanting to, okay, let's, we want to do a narrative of these two versus one another, uh, because they're both characters that we really, really love. I can understand that, you know, on, on some level. But yeah, you've got to think about the way that you frame it. And yeah, certainly the way that that scene has been described um it just sort of feels a little bit yeah they've not only have they created this narrative of yes he is better he is a god um they've said we're going to demonstrate how godly he is by showing him with a bunch of of poor um people of color (laughs) who are all sort of reaching up to him like he's the messiah himself that is yeah not very well thought out no so, I mean, that's one where I'm like, yep, that, that is absolutely an example of that trope. Yeah. You're, you're completely right there. I have nothing more to add. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's jump on to our next one, uh, which is Avatar. Controversial choice. And I have to say, look, I really love this film. I really do. I enjoy it. Um, I, okay. Part of it is the whole sort of moving away from technology back to a simpler state where we embrace nature and we embrace nature as as kind of like a deity in its own right and it Mm. sustains us and we sustain it obviously that all feeds into my own personal belief system it really does so you know i'm the target audience there 
Yeah. Look, the there are some howevers. There, there are lots of howevers. Now, you know, we talked last week about the sort of uh, classism and stuff like that. And, you know, don't get me started on the rural fantasy, um, which is, you know, the... the <laughs> cream comes out of the tap it's always quiet <laughs> it's always it's beautiful nature is sustaining like nature is not just you know a force which can destroy as much as it can you know provide in fact and it must destroy and it in must order destroy to provide to provide yeah um like the, the whole the rural fantasy thing and also particularly actually because the rural fantasy it doesn't it didn't just affect people in sort of rural england and and sort of rural europe it also plays into the weird um fetishization of native lives and native spirituality um, which I think has appeared in uh, particularly a lot of American, you know, TV. Um, and I think, look, Avatar, I have not seen it the whole way through. Not going to lie, I watched a little bit of it, got bored and stopped. Um, yeah. not, but, not the biggest sci-fi fan is our Madeline. No, <laughs> not really. And look, to be honest, if I had actually maybe gone to see it in the cinema when it was all you know 3d and all sort of wow maybe that would have wowed me a little bit more but i was just watching it in a crowded room from a tv so to be fair i probably didn't get the best experience of it and i i wasn't the main character was a bit sort of of a, of a wet towel to me really realistically um and we're also not going to talk about you know the whole sort of disability thing that that's a whole that's a whole other kettle of fish which we just don't have time to talk about right now no we don't yeah so on the one it side was... oh go on sorry i, I was going to say that there's it's clearly even unconsciously been inspired by dances with wolves yes um <laughs> On the one hand, yes, I absolutely understand the criticism that you're suggesting that it's okay for um, someone from a very particular culture and background to come in and and almost kind of become the chosen one for that culture. Um, yes, I get that. And that's a valid argument. I, I can't knock that one down. That's definitely there. I will add the idea that to many people who feel trapped by a capitalist system and one that hasn't treated them very well, one that they can't really escape, that idea of finding something more, of discovering a spirituality, any spirituality, but a spirituality that connects you with the land and nature, which is something many of us have lost mm -hmm. through one thing or another, um, doesn't just play into the idea of the rural fantasy, but is an essential thing that people need to do. I mean, I talk a lot about rewilding, and part of that is is this idea of, yeah, we have genuinely lost something by moving away from nature. That doesn't mean that I think it's okay to go in and say, to join the nearest tribe or whatever. Um, but I do understand the appeal of that. And I could understand for the main character in that story mm -hmm. why he would suddenly be seduced by that. And not simply because of the whole, well, in one reality, he's lost the use of his legs and his, basically he's been treated like um, we treat army vets as in not very well, not exactly yeah. well sustained. No one's, no one, there's no healthcare system to support him. Um, 
so yeah the appeal of being able to run and jump and to be sort of eight feet tall and incredibly strong and powerful mm -hmm. i get that but it wasn't just that he comes to really understand the culture and i get also why he was sent to speak to them he's the sort of person who people sort of think he's a bit of a duffer and then he kind of proves that he's a little bit better than that and people grudgingly come to like him he's got this openness and they would have to have sent somebody who would speak to them in a way that they would recognize but also someone who actually understood where the you know the, the corporations and the capitalists were coming from because they had no frame of reference for that yeah they could not understand the idea of someone literally murdering the planet that sustains them yeah it's it's an interesting thing um and again from the perspective of somebody who was raised in various countries across the world and who didn't really get any proper sort of understanding of british culture or or kind of you know any any of that until sort of after sort of pretty specific develop, de I can't say it, deve devel developmental stages. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, I can understand the call of, or or, the, or how you can sort of fall in love with another culture and how you can associate very, very strongly with it, with it and how it can speak to you on a spiritual level. And, you know, it's things like this which have allowed religions to spread. It's why we do have, you know, um, British white Muslim. Um, it's why, you know, we have Buddhism around the world. It's, you know spirituality and things like that some of these things are actually supposed to be shared and are encouraged to be shared by the communities who are practicing them now i'm going to put aside we're not going to talk about organized religion or any of that jazz but what i'm saying is that i don't think it's wrong to have a narrative which talks about a person deeply connecting with another culture's um well, spirituality and their culture, particularly if that culture then welcomes them in. Yeah. And I do think that one of the things about Avatar, despite my hang-ups with it and with the whole sort of general narrative, is that he's not a white saviour in so much as they need him to save them from a problem which they are being faced with they need him as an inside man to help them face off against a problem that he is a part of. Yeah. So it's, a, and, and this is the thing is that we never ever turn this narrative around. We never sort of point fingers when you see this on the other side. And we do see all the time where you've got a white hero, he's got a white crew, they're facing off against a, a, a sort of a villain. Uh, let's say like the mummy, for example, um, yeah. His crew, it's, you know, you've got the three, they're white, and then you've got the tomb guy, whose name I've forgotten, with the, with the yeah. amazing sort of scarf around his head yes. and the tattoos. Um, he is Egyptian. Okay? He, you know, so you wouldn't turn around and say, ah, Egyptian saviour narrative, where he comes in and 
he's you know uh, and he literally does turn up in every single film at the nick of time yes exactly um (laughs) it's that you need an inside man you need an inside man to kind of help you against from particularly because they have they do have insider knowledge to that so the the main character of avatar um they do actually need him because just as he's been sent in to connect with the with the is it the nabu is that what they're called yeah yeah i mean it's cultural cross-pollination and that is something that ought to be encouraged yeah so just as he's been sent in to sort of negotiate with them and is there in that way he becomes the nabu's in on the other side as well so i don't really see it as a as a white savior narrative because he's actually he's not he's not coming and saving them from a problem which they're facing because of themselves and you know he doesn't come in and say i understand your culture better than you do or anything like that they are teaching him actively throughout he becomes a part of the group becomes welcomed into the group and the problem that he is helping them to face is the invader problem of which he is connected yeah absolutely he he shows them how to fight not you know or you know where to direct their efforts not what to what to do he's not it's not teaching the ignorant natives basically um because they're clear and that's i think the other thing with avatar is the naboo are kind of no they're, they're very much depicted as a society that has a rich cultural heritage that is politically minded that has a sense of its identity its history mm. it has art it has its own spiritual practices and things it's it's not this wishy-washy sort of um you know the the noble savage type thing going on it's much more nuanced than that so mm. when people point at it and go oh it's a white savior narrative and it's like well it's not really he's kind of i hate he's kind of become them he's become one of them quite literally in a physical way by the end of the, the film he he's abandoned his old body and the planet itself has allowed him to transfer permanently into you know into the body that was made yeah because um, the thing with pandora is that it's incredibly hostile to humans and humans are tiny compared to the naboo so um yeah you know the whole thing would not work if you were trying to around this planet as a human yeah now i do have as i said i do have reservations about the film and i can really understand why other people do as well there are a lot of things that i'm not very impressed by and there are also a lot of things which if the film was being remade nowadays um they certainly could have done better and they certainly could have considered um in greater depth but I, I personally don't think that it is a white saviour narrative. But at the same time, I am, I'm within the camp that I can still understand why it's pissed a lot of people off. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. I really, I, I, I like the film. I found it an enjoyable piece of sci-fi. And I'm also of the mind that generally, with coding, because these are essentially aliens they're not a human race at all they're a completely different race yes you can make an argument for coding there and they probably should have drawn on more sources so it wasn't just very specifically oh it looks like we've kind of gone from you know mixed a bit of african tribalism in with some native american culture there Um, and they they should have been a bit more nuanced and multi-layered absolutely agree with that 
Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's again reductive to just say this is a white savior narrative. There's a lot more going on, and it does still have some value. Well, I think it still has a lot of value in many respects, depending on what you're looking at. Yeah. Um, than than just to say, well, it's it's an irritating film. I mean, it might be your irritating film, but <laughs> that's that's fine. That's your opinion. <laughs> Yeah, Jules and I definitely fall into slightly just sort of different, but I do agree. I can understand why people have found it enjoyable, and I and again, I can also understand why people have connected with it because again, at this at the heart of that is that idea of closeness with with nature, which, as Jules pointed out, is something a lot of us have lost. So, yeah. Okay, let's jump onto our next one, which is Dangerous Minds. Yeah, so this is one that came out when uh, Madeline was a twinkle in her father's eye and I was a teenager. <laughs> Actually, I think you'd have been about two. I think it was about... I was, I was the exhausted rings under my father's eye. <laughs> <laughs> ah! Those ones. That's much less fun. That was, why did I have that twinkle in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> I have regrets, many regrets. <laughs> um, brief potted synopsis of Dangerous Minds and I haven't seen it for many many years so we're going off my memory and my memory may be faulty but uh, it's a, a I want to say it's set in Los Angeles it's set at a school and it is a school that is almost entirely um, black children black community mm-hmm. and it's not a good school and obviously we've talked about this in the other episode but the attitude at home is that that the education system won't help you. You'll face too much and we'd do better if you started doing work in your parents' business or yeah. in some respects it's kind of like, well, if you dealt drugs with your older brother, etc. So they're not getting the support at home to push them so that basically they adapt to the system which doesn't favour them. I'm yeah. not saying that's a, a, a good thing, by the way. I'm just saying that's how the film is framed, Yeah, as I recall. Michelle Pfeiffer comes in as a supply teacher who is basically an undercover agent and she manages to make a connection with the kids in the end and in some some ways that are not really approved of by the the teaching staff right um she teaches them self-defense for example um and and tells them i think the important thing is she tells them they always have a choice your choices aren't always good ones as in if someone is holding a gun on you you're probably going to die, but you can choose how you die. You can choose whether to scream or not. Yeah. So no matter what the situation is, there is always a choice. Your life is not completely out of your own hands. That's an incredibly powerful thing to say to any group of young people. Yeah. And I have to say, as someone who taught children, um, okay, yes, just as a martial arts instructor and, you know, acted as the child protection officer for many years, um, yeah, I would see a lot of children who were not getting any sort of parental support or encouragement at home, and children need it from somewhere. So sometimes they were getting it from me or my co-instructor instead, and quite a few of those children have gone on and they've grown up and they have done so much more with their lives than they thought they would do as children. You, I mean, you can't save everybody, unfortunately, and sometimes you can't. You're not the person who can make the connection, and sometimes people would look at me maybe talking to a young Muslim boy 
and think that I was the wrong person for that job. And it's like, well, yes, I probably was the wrong person for that job, but I was also the only person available. Yeah. So I'm not saying, again, this is, this is not me proving my bid for sainthood. This is just a case of drawing on my own experiences and, you know, having been a child who needed an adult who encouraged them, and in my case it was my dad, um, you, you you need somebody, you need somebody who is pulling for you. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes it's the martial arts instructor, sometimes it is the inappropriately white supply teacher in the film. Yeah. And it... Particularly in, you know, schools or environments where... Um, society around you is basically telling you there is one path for you yeah there's only one path um because it is the same story that you have seen you are caught in a cycle a perpetual cycle this is also you know cycles of abuse cycles of poverty etc um to be told you have a choice in some ways sometimes it can feel cheap but it depends who it comes from and it depends how it's taught and it can be a lifeline this this feeling this little glimmer of hope which basically says i am not part of a pattern of which i cannot escape i am yes. allowed to be conscientious of my own thoughts and wants and ideas i don't have to swallow them because that's just the way that life is um, and it does make a big difference. It really, really can. And I think Jules's point about saying, Am I, was I the right person for the job? Yeah, not always, but sometimes it's not about who's the right person for the job, it's who's actually there. Um, yeah. And particularly for disadvantaged kids or kids who are suffering from, you know, with, with learning disabilities or things along those lines, um, sometimes there aren't a lot of options and... It doesn't really matter where it comes from. Um, it just makes a lot of difference. Uh, from my own perspective, for example, there was... I'm not going to go into lots of details. Um, I got support with regards to something um, when I was a teenager from a man that I barely knew. He was the partner of a friend's parent. Um... And again, I don't want to get into details, but essentially he just said something to me one day which changed my perspective about myself and my situation entirely um, in a very, very healthy way. Yeah. And that is something that I will never, ever forget. So I think in this particular case because i haven't seen dangerous minds um yes we're we're again in that ballpark which says this would have been it would have been great if this had been someone who was part of the community and you do actually get lots of stories where that does actually take place where you do get that narrative yeah i agree that would have been great but that doesn't mean that this narrative is inherently wrong no and since it was jiving off the whole you know, the differences between cultures. Um, I, I understand why it's annoying to have a white character come in and learn something about themselves in the process of going into another culture and seeing how different it is. But on the other hand, 
that's kind of how we learn about other cultures is by encountering them and then realizing they're different from our own and then building that into our, our experience our map of the world and life as we know it yeah so yes i understand it's annoying um again there are other examples you didn't have to watch this one i don't think it's really quite a white saving narrative because it's not a case of someone the, the kids are not treated as as props for her character development no you see what i mean and this is this is the other thing again i haven't seen this so jules you'll know more than i i will um but also i think another thing that kind of tends to sort of play into the white savior narrative is if the cultures that they are sort of entering and that they are learning from for themselves are not actually reflective of real life situations oh yeah absolutely (laughs) um that is that's when a real alarm bell start to ring and that is when people are definitely being used as props um if however it is reflective of actual society and actual difficulties and things like that then i hate to say it and and this is this is one of those situations where i hate that this is reality but it is it also weirdly enough provides an in for other white audiences again given the period that it was made in now could this have been done better yes um and that narrative has been revisited and reused multiple times um in different sort of scenarios but i don't think this one dated dated as it is is necessarily evil if they have actually done a good job of representing what you know life is actually like for these for these kids yeah i I mean i love the fact that we're talking about a film that came out in my teens as dated but you're absolutely right of course (laughs) things have changed rapidly and that's a good thing (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and we've moved on since then and i think people forget sometimes that we need these interim steps you can't just go from A to Z and miss out the rest of the alphabet. You do actually need these little interim steps, which means sometimes that a film will come out and you'll look back and say, that wasn't as perfect as I thought and I don't like this thread. Yeah, and yeah you're, you're right. You're not wrong. But on the other hand, would you have got to where you are now without someone having made that in the first place? And I think the answer is probably no. Yeah, it's it's the it's the rungs of the ladder thing. If the rungs are all too far apart, it's it's much harder to climb than if there's lots of little rungs. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, um, I'm moving on to basically Daenerys Targaryen's art <laughs> in Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay, so Daenerys Targaryen, that whole arc. Um, I think the problem is it's very different in the books because with the with the series they have that visual and you know the scene that i mean yeah and again it's very like dawn of justice and they obviously were going for that specific visual yeah i think um and bear in mind i still haven't got around to reading all the game of thrones books but Mm. um as i understand it it's yes she's doing it because she feels quite strongly about slavery anyway Mm. um but she also sees the the political advantage in having a very grateful population of already trained warriors for example mm. and you know daenerys is framed much more as a conqueror from 
early on in the books, I believe. She's very Charles I, isn't she? Mm. It's interesting because Daenerys is obviously younger in the books. Yes. Um, and in, on the one perspective, she's politically quite shrewd. She's smart, she's clever, she knows what she wants. And in other respects, she is um, a, still a child. She hasn't had a childhood. She hasn't developed in certain sort of ways. Um, and she's also someone who has lost the ability, who wanted to be a mother, has lost, lost her child, lost her husband, lost the ability to have children, and now has three giant lizards. Um, which I think will will do a number on you, really, on a number of levels. Um, yeah. On the... And then there's the these basically the series of betrayals she encounters. Yeah, exactly. And she obviously learns from everything she survives. Yeah. Now she basically she learns sort of she was always sort of frowned upon um, slavery, and then basically having you know been she had that actually uh, sort of that earlier white savior moment which was a learning experience for her which is that she helps that the woman the healer woman yeah and then the healer woman turned around and said what did you expect us to be grateful because you gave us prefer you 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 still enslaved us um which for me was actually basically was a big informative part for her where she kind of actually had to look at actually what is what is slavery because uh, she was she was patting herself on the back and then was shocked when this woman turned around and said no we're still slaves um yeah you know what did you expect from us and she came to sort of understand and she was a child um you know she was a child who was trying to do her best within that situation um when she didn't wield an incredible amount of power um, and as she wields more power, she ha does have this moralistic streak. She is genuinely very affected by the idea of slavery. Yes. Um, probably because she was abused as a child, probably because her brother essentially did sell her off, you know, in a very, very cruel way, um, in which she kind of had to claw her way to the top. She... she finds slavery abhorrent and as we discussed in the previous episode um there were white people historically who found slavery abhorrent it wasn't just a okay we all accept it that was not a thing um so i don't think there's anything wrong with the narrative of her, of her turning around saying actually i'm going to free these slaves um and i'm going to welcome them into my ranks and make them free men um and they don't have to fight for me but they can um, yeah. And this sort of works actually quite successfully for her until it doesn't because she kind of goes in with this sense of idealization, and then is suddenly met with when she's stopped being a conqueror and is trying to be a ruler, she's kind of met with this whole this backlash of people who are like, but we want slaves still. And suddenly you've, you've crashed our economy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Essentially. Um, so in the books, I didn't ever see it as a white saviour narrative. I saw it as the narrative of a person who was learning from what they've seen and what they've experienced um, and is making shrewd decisions, basically, because not only it's much easier to take over a city if there are people on the inside of the city who are also fighting for you. Yeah. You know, this has been something which I'm pretty sure historically has been done. 
Oh, big time. Uh, yes. So um, I didn't see that. The way the thing is that the way that it was framed in the series is on the one side I could have said this is this is a moving narrative where these desperate people have because she's been there to support them have been able to throw off their own chains and have been able to kind of come free and they rush to her and they call her mother uh, mother because she's the mother of dragons um, but also mother because she has come to save them um, the problem is that instead of actually showing a wide range of different slaves of different yes. ethnicities you know of you know all of that they all looked exactly the same and there is done denarius the most <laughs> practically an albino she's so white <laughs> being yeah. passed around and treated like a god by these people who themselves were their own force within the narrative yeah i completely agree and i'm pretty sure it wasn't one single um ethnicity in the books oh yeah um, no there certainly... was it was literally everywhere she went because they these slaves were from everywhere yeah and certainly um from the parts of history that i know martin was drawing on to inform this there were as many, if not more, white slaves in that part of the world yeah. at the time he was drawing on than than others. So, um, yeah, that was a cock-up on the producer's part in, in terms of the series. But yes, in the series, it absolutely does look like that. And I can see why people went in that direction. Mm. Um, again, this is the problem with not show it, thinking something isn't relevant um, when you're adapting a book. Yeah. And not showing a diverse range of um, you know, ethnicities, skin tones, etc. Yeah, <laughs> you're portraying it. It's it, this. This was a this was a, a sort of a filming faux pas for me. Narratively, it makes sense. And if it had been a bunch of white people doing it, no one would have batted an eyelid because narratively, it does make sense for people to be you know, worshipping their liberator. And, you know, we've had conquerors and liberators and stuff in the past who have been hailed as gods, you know. So this is not a strange or weird thing. No. But the way that they filmed it, the way that they shot it, the lack of thought they put into it created a different narrative, which was plain as day. And I can understand why a lot of people went, seriously? <laughs> <laughs> did, did did nobody else see what was wrong with that? Yeah, um, it was an uncomfortable moment, definitely. Yeah. Uh, okay, To Kill a Mockingbird. I love this book. I love this book. This is an amazing book. And I know that Harper Lee is supposed to have said years and years later that, yes, she didn't mean to write a white saving narrative. However, I would like to add to that that Harper Lee, at the time she was supposed to have said that, um, was not entirely compassmentous i mean she i think towards the end she had something a bit like alzheimer's mm -hmm. um so that's not to devalue what she said but the problem is we can't say for sure that she actually said it and wasn't having words put in her mouth by somebody else because there appears to have been some very dicey stuff going on with to set a watchman which yeah. is the book that came after which you know she never wanted published yeah. Um, I don't think she did actually change her mind at the 11th hour. I think she kind of got pushed into it when she wasn't able to say no. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, 
with the film yes maybe but you know you've got to go back to when the film was made and when it was set and what it's depicting with the book i don't think considering it's set in that very early 1900s part of um the, the south in america and it's looking at that very specific problem and it's looking at that problem from a child's perspective that pitch perfect um first person child perspective this this is a child who is intelligent but just does not understand why someone is being treated differently and is likely to die because of his skin color yeah and she doesn't understand why her father who she has you know at a certain point your parents are god when you're a child and she's about four or five in the book yeah um why can't her her god her father why can't he save him yeah what it what is this thing this 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 prejudice that she seems to be swimming around in that she's never really understood before what is it this thing that's that's causing this terrible sense of injustice and children do tend to see justice in terms of sort of you know black and white because you you start off with this sort of very binary understanding of the universe don't you yeah child i agree i agree and because of you know you know in the previous episode we talked about inherent racism um you know which is that the biological ah you look different to me i'm scared of you um if you are raised around people who look different to you you're less likely to be that 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 becomes the norm as you know you see them you interact with them that's just the way things are you accept it from a very young age if you are raised in a way where you see people who look different to you and you see them constantly being treated differently to you then you are likely to you know pick up on that and and inherit it even if you then sort of start to analyze it when you're older but the yeah. thing with Scout is she's in a position where she might have she she will have been shielded or she won't have seen the worst sides of racism. You know, she, yeah. and you know, she she doesn't understand it. She but she is also because of probably who her father is and her childhood you know she doesn't understand the the criticisms and stuff that her cousins and things like that i think are throwing at her about what her father is doing um she is not she's not racist um in that you know she she hasn't become part of the sort of systemic racism at this point um she's just looking at everything through her own point of view and for me the story is not a white savior narrative because it the savior character atticus doesn't prevail no he doesn't he's up against he's up against the system and it doesn't matter that he's white and he's educated and he's a man yeah he 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 can't win but he's taken on the cause anyway yeah. It's that that powerful moment at the end where, you know, Scout is with the the young man's family, and um, I think it's the young man's father says to her, "Stand up, your father's walking past." As in, they know that he could not win, but he's tried anyway. Someone yeah. was willing to speak. Someone who had the power to speak was willing to speak. 
So it's a case of stand up, you show respect for this. I don't think that's a case of groveling, servile um, gratitude, even when somebody didn't do you any favours in the end. That's more a case of recognising that, yeah, we all, we're all part of this broken system and, and you couldn't win and yet you still went up against the dragon for... Yeah. Anyway, when the rest of us, we literally didn't have any weapons. Yeah. And the, the, the thing is that with Atticus and also the way that it was done in the film is that even though he doesn't win, there is a moment where he highlights the injustice of it where even though ultimately the you know the jury rule in one way something has been brought forward yeah there is there is an understanding there is you know it's not just been allowed to be brushed under the carpet he has made other people conscious of it what they didn't want to be conscious of um so yeah, I don't see it as a white savior narrative. I see it as a historical story which feels truthful, at not least because it's told from the point of view of a child who's watching all of this unfold and trying to make, you know, trying to understand it. Yeah, definitely. And okay, if you're annoyed by the fact that the main character is a a young white girl and her father the hero is a white man etc and that you know the black guy still gets hanged um fine i completely understand that but there are other books out there set in the same time period that examine very similar circumstances that are told from a black perspective and you can find them and read them as well you know this, this is not kind of this is the only thing available it it absolutely isn't yeah I guess because it's such a famous example. Um, yeah. It's a particular irritation. But I have to say, I think that book did a lot more good than it ever did any harm. I agree. I, I, I agree. And I think particularly it has a lot of power as a, as a book which introduces a lot of British and English kids, you know, to uh, the American... Uh, to American and by virtue of connection uh you know systemic racism (laughs) yeah yeah definitely okay Okay, um dune (laughs) yeah see the thing dune always gets criticized as a white savior narrative and i genuinely think that anybody who's making this argument has a not seen the films there are two films now or b read the book i don't see how an intelligent person who is analytical could read the book or see the films and think that what's being said there is that a white man is coming in and throwing off the chains of oppression for a group of um, people of color characters because that's not what's happening what's happening is a, a damning critique of messianic tropes and the fact that they are definitely being exploited by uh, essentially a one percenter so you have um you know the the fremen on dune were imported they're not native no one's native to dune apart from the sandworms because it's not exactly a an environment that welcomes mammals of any kind (laughs) except very very small like kangaroo mice which are very cute um yeah 
But the Fremen have been there a long time and they were imported originally as workers very much as we, we sent people out to Australia. So they weren't really enslaved, but they were kind of sent there, sort of like go and work. And after a certain amount of time, you probably got racial characteristics, um, but it wasn't just one race that was sent out there for a start. Mm. However, you have to bear in mind that the Fremen have lost contact with a lot of their own history. So in their minds, they're the natives of Dune. So that's the perspective you start from. Mm-hmm. Um, Dune is basically ruled by whichever uh, baronial house or ducal house is in charge or is in favour with the Padishah Emperor <coughs> at that particular time. Right. Now I'd like to point out here that the, the, the Emperor, the top ruling class family, is clearly based on the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> so it's not like people are just going, yes, this is clearly just about Saudi Arabia. Um, it's not. Even if you look at the Fremen themselves, if you look at their culture, their practices, their attitude towards equality within the family and things, yes, you can definitely draw some parallels with sort of middle Middle East type tradition and culture. You can also draw parallels with Celtic tradition and various other places. It's much more layered than people give it credit for. And on top of that, you've got the Bene Gesserit, who I've mentioned before, who are basically space eugenicists. They only teach women. Uh, and their big goal is to create the Kwisatz Haderach, the, the chosen one, the one who can look back along DNA pathways of both male and female. Right. And what they do in order to help this program go forward, and they wield political power and stuff as well, is they they carefully seed religious doctrine in places. And Dune is one of the places where they have seeded this religious doctrine. They've had they've sent a sister out there who has integrated with the culture and has carefully spread the idea of a prophecy and a chosen one someone who is not of your people but will know your ways as if born to them which strange enough paul does paul seems to fulfill all these conditions of the prophecy you know he will he will come um he will deliver water to arrakis etc 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 um they basically just want to get rid of the ruling classes because they'd quite like to have their planet to themselves thank you very much right but the planet ha- is the only known location of the spice the spice melange which makes space travel possible. It's the only place in the known universe that has it. So obviously nobody is letting go. So yes, parallels with oil, etc. there. Um, the spice does other things as well. It extends consciousness. It gives you a longer life. It's incredibly addictive. So basically it's everything. It's drugs, it's chocolate, it's sugar, it's alcohol, it's oil. It's everything. Um, Paul, the, there's a big political upheaval. The emperor is concerned about Paul's father Um, Paul's father instead of going into hiding with his son and his concubine goes okay fine I will rule Arrakis I know it's a trap but I'm going to go in and spring it anyway and prove that I am the the emperor's loyal man Mm -hmm. but the arrival house is conspiring against him and everything goes tits up as expected Yeah. Uh, Paul and his mother escape into the desert to the Fremen uh, where Paul kind of fulfills the requirements of the prophecy seeded by the Bene Gesserit. His mother is a Bene Gesserit, so she integrates quite well as well. Mm-hmm. And you have a definite point where Paul's like, yeah, the spice is changing me. I've been trained in a specific way by my mother. And the spice, which is weird and kind of can switch on prescient and psychic type abilities, is affecting me and I can see the way forward and I intend to avenge my father's death, etc. 
and fuck the emperor up. And I am going to use this prophecy. I'll become their messiah in order to get what I want. It's very much a, this is what happens when you lead people to believe a messiah is coming to save them. Right. So it is definitely not a white saviour narrative. He goes in and says, hey, so do you want a jihad, guys? And they're like, actually, yeah, we do. We're just waiting for the chosen one. Oh, that term. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> but, but yeah, the whole thing is a critique of, of that kind of thinking and how dangerous it is. So when people then say, oh, yeah, you know, it's a white saviour narrative, it's like, no, it's an anti-white saviour narrative. That's the entire point. Okay. I've not seen it or read it, so um, this is entirely... I just have to take you entirely by your word for this, but certainly from how you've described it. Okay, uh, let's jump next to Stargate. Yeah, have you seen that one? No. Um, okay, sorry, I've put down sci-fi films that you haven't seen, but um, I'll just very briefly say that um, the whole thing with Stargate is you have a sort of a, a linguist, an Egyptologist, who helps um, part of the US government decrypt something found in hieroglyphics on a device that is discovered. Mm -hmm. And it turns out to be a gate that allows you to basically travel without moving, so you can travel from one place to another through the stars literally go to another planet nice um and it turns out that you know the whole sort of oh aliens built the pyramids thing well they're working on the the idea that maybe that might be true that the the ancient egyptian gods might have actually been aliens and obviously people worshipped them as gods because they were so technologically advanced mm. um it's a fun family film guys don't look <laughs> too hard into the mythology <laughs> Anyway, the main character and a bunch of the others go to this other planet where they find these people who are still speaking ancient Egyptian. And the argument is that it's a white saviour narrative because this guy sort of manages to confront the, the so-called so god, the Ra character, mm -hmm. and drive him off the planet, destroy the ship, etc. Um, and he then stays with them and marries the... When he's accidentally married the girl before he worked out that there was a big vowel shift in ancient Egyptian and that's why they weren't understanding each other. <laughs> it's all very amusing. Um, I don't know. I think maybe you could make an argument that it does kind of lean into the trope a little bit, but I don't think it's done in a, a way that is meant in any way to be offensive or harmful it's just that the main character happens to be white right. if that makes sense yeah yeah i get that and it's again it's when it was written and at that time you would have had a white male lead at that time so really it, it what it's guilty of is being of its time i think yeah yeah i can understand that um i've not seen it but it does sound like it might just be a uh yeah, a victim of its of its era, a little bit. Yeah, but but yeah, that there is an argument to say that it does lean on the trope a bit. Yeah, it kind of does. I don't think it's doing it in the same way that, with much less justification, Dawn of Justice does, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm agreeing with you. Okay, next uh, we have. Oh, I've lost my list. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Uh, Cloud Atlas. 
Now, which part of Cloud Atlas? Because Cloud Atlas is... <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? Cloud Atlas is based on the brilliant book by David Mitchell, not the comedian, who, which is basically six novellas torn in half and stitched roughly back together. And it's supposed to show the interconnectedness of disparate lives. Hmm. It's an incredible literary work that leans heavily on science fiction. Um, and the historical fiction in it is, as far as I can see, extremely accurate as well. What they decided to do with the film was have the same actors play characters as if they were reincarnations of other characters. And they they used makeup to change... I mean, it's a pretty diverse cast. They used makeup to change um, people's faces and features and colouring. Oh, no! <laughs> But they did it, but I would like to say they did it for everybody. So the bit that people object to is a white guy being transformed into a Korean guy in New Seoul, in, in the sci-fi, well, the, the futuristic portion of the film. Mm -hmm. But Halle Berry is playing both a black woman in the 70s and also a Jewish woman married to a musician in the 1940s. And they've obviously toned down her skin colour and things in that as well. It's not played as blind casting. She's played, she literally plays a different race. Mm -hmm. And you see it with the, I can't, I'm so sorry, I can't remember the actress's name. But she is, um, an, I believe, a Korean actress who, again, was in the sci-fi portion of the film. Mm -hmm. um, also plays a freckled redhead with very white skin and very green eyes in the sort of frontier portion of the film. So this uh, it's not as simple to say as, oh, well, what you're doing is basically Asian face or black face or whatever, because everybody is doing it. They're trying to show the continuity of the characters. Right. Um, it's not a terrible film. It's, it's, it's actually quite an enjoyable film. I'd, I think maybe they should have just recast the characters and trust the audience to keep up personally i think that would have been the better choice mm, yeah but i don't see how it's a white savior narrative that that's the bit that doesn't connect for me because okay he's a white guy yes he's playing an asian character which is like okay maybe not great but he's not playing it, it he's not a white character in the asian part of the film playing do you, do you see what i mean he's i not do coming as a white savior yeah this is this is a I don't think this is a white saviour trope. This is a... You didn't really think this through trope. <laughs> yeah, I, compl I completely agree with that. And I have to say, the makeup is good, but it's not always completely successful. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, yeah, to me, that just sounds like someone didn't really think this it's like through. maybe you could have just hired some more actors there were probably actors out there who wanted to do it yeah yeah gotta say that that's yeah for me that's one sort of it's like with sci science fiction and fantasy always gamble on your readers and viewers being intelligent enough to keep up that's usually a really good rule to go by yeah Oh, okay. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. All right. Um, all right. So we are on to our last couple now. So 
The Matrix. Yeah. Um, okay. I think we're skipping over the fact that Keanu Reeves isn't actually white. He's no, he's not. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's he's part Asian. Uh, like, is his father Vietnamese? Something like that, and South Sea Islander as well, isn't he? Is it South Sea Islander or is he? I. Let's let's find out. Let us find out. Let's he's he's Canadian. Uh, he was born in Beirut. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, okay. His so his mother is English. His father is from Hawaii and is native Hawaiian. Chinese, English, Irish, and Portuguese. Um, and his grandmother is Chinese, Hawaiian, through his father. Yeah. So, yeah, he... <laughs> I mean, it's not even clear that he's playing a white guy in the film. No! <laughs> so... Yeah, this is one where I'm like, people just look, they literally looked at someone's skin pigmentation and made a value judgment. And we've got a name for that. that that's called racism, guys. <laughs> just in case you weren't keeping up. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. I'm not saying that, that there aren't things with the matrix that you couldn't raise questions over oh no i, I think I totally everything agree. is subject to that but. yes and you know we are also all victims of the lens in which we um you know take in media uh so if something is particularly close to us or something is something you know it, it sort of strikes us out we're likely to see it reflected in what we watch um, we're likely to see the things we like and things that we don't like so I can understand why someone might turn around and say, actually, I don't like this. And I'm not even going to say that I disagree with some people. I think for the most part, I've never really looked at the Matrix in terms of sort of racism or, or sort of through a racial lens, probably because I always did it in terms of of, of it being a trans narrative, um, which is a whole other kettle of fish. So this is the first yeah. time I've actually had to look at it and go, is it a white saviour narrative? Um, and other than the fact that, as we've previously established, Keanu Reeves is not actually white. Um, yeah, I just don't think it is. No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, people complained about the fact that you've got um, Morpheus and... The prophet, the prophet, or is it the prophet? I think it's prophet. Um, all be both being black played into you know the magical black person trope. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not 100% convinced on that, but you know if that's how you see it and that's your opinion, then I think that's got more weight behind it than it's always saving narrative. To be honest, I feel like that particular trope tends to sort of lean into the whole sort of woo mysticism. Um, thing rather than you know this is a <laughs> alien sci-fi you know mind altering kind of <laughs> adventure so I never really read that as being the you know the the mystical black man or black person stereotype 
No, it didn't read like that to me either. Um, but again, we are, you know, I don't want to say victims of our own perspectives, but you yeah. know, we are subject to our own perspectives. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I would have just looked at it as this is a cool character and this cool character is clearly a mental archetype. Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, our last one for today is <laughs> The Last Samurai. <laughs> See, in a way, this is kind of Avatar again or Dances with Wolves again. You've got a, yeah, okay, you've got a white male character who, for whatever reason, cannot connect with his own culture and society and finds not only solace but an aspect of himself he thought lost and dead within another culture yeah and and once again this is a character who really immerses himself in that other culture and learns it and it, it's not a case of he just dons the the traditional robes or what have you or the armor or nicks the sword off the body of a dead samurai yeah and i do think one of the one of the things that sort of betrayed it a little bit is that it, it's you know the last samurai, and then the front cover is just a picture of the whitest man you've ever seen. And the point of you know if you watch it, he's not the last samurai. No, he joins forces with the last samurai. It's not his story. Now, for me, the thing that bothers me the most about this film is the portrayal, the betrayal, the portrayal, not betrayal, portrayal <laughs> of the sort of the samurai class and the you know the shift over uh in the meiji period and stuff like that and the way that they've got this whole samurai class is like oh it's a noble way of life and stuff like that and i'm like, like you, you... i'm pretty sure this was much more to do with power than it was to it's do like... with any of that <laughs> it's like yeah i i I, w I was taught karate by someone whose grandfather was a samurai um well, at least one of my instructors was and Yes, there there was a code of honour and things like that, but let's not forget that they were not really the white hats here. They were not the good guys. They were also the warlord class. And they did some really, really awful shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well it was it's always the scenes where it's like, oh you see him with the village and stuff like that, and I'm like, the samurai class were sort of historically not very nice to workers. <laughs> No, they sort of rocked up. No, they they were a feudal. Look, they were feudal warlords, okay. And yeah. traditionally, feudal warlords are not great with their 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 serfs and farmers and things. They're just not because yeah. if you can, if you've got the the sword, if you've got the weapon and the power, then you just turn up and you take stuff. Yeah. So you know, mostly when I watch that film, I'm like, yeah, they've done the whole sort of wow, mystical kind of. Oh yes, we sort of connect, and. You could argue that in the case that obviously this is a fictional, you know, the samurai who's being depicted, this is he's a fictional guy. Yeah. He's based on some real figures, but he's a fictional character. So what you could say is, okay, um, he's a monk. Perhaps in this fictional universe, you know, in this, he does treat, he really does believe in the way of the samurai. You know, this is something which has, you know, great meaning to him um, and is, you know, uh, you know, something that is reflected in the way that he sort of treats his village. And he does have a small village and he's well respected there. So maybe, maybe, you know, that could be believable. 
I don't see it as a white saviour narrative. And I'll actually say one of my favourite things about that entire film is the the slow burn romance between the 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 wife of the guy who Tom Cruise's character killed and Tom yeah. Cruise. Yeah. Um, now her marriage to this other guy, it was very much a thing of a, a little bit a thing of honor. And initially, she wants to kill herself, you know, because yeah. out of a sort of a matter of honor, she doesn't get on with with the Tom Cruise character. Tom Cruise character sort of starts to get on with the children, but it's a complicated relationship because he did, you know, kill their father. But he. It was a kind of, it was an honourable sort of killing. The, everything's framed differently, you know. Yeah. Um, and also his relationship and the way that he does things about the household. You know, for instance, he's, you know, she says, you know, Japanese men don't do this. And he goes, I'm not Japanese. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a line, you know, in the book where actually he's playing a different role because he does come from a different culture. And I think that is attractive to her. But the thing I like is that you never see them kiss. You never see them have sex. But And we've talked in the past about sex scenes which don't actually involve sex. And there is yeah. just one scene where she dresses him. And <laughs> this is like the opposite of a sex scene in terms of... Usually that involves taking clothes off. She's putting more clothes on him. And it's incredibly sensual um, and very spiritual. And for me, that was something which had more showed more meaning showed more nuance than pretty much anything else in the film yeah i mean i kind of i have to say i've enjoyed it just as kind of like an adventure film and i went in thinking this is not going to be an accurate depiction of anything yes <laughs> um, but yes there were little moments that i that i did really appreciate that was one of them definitely i also liked the growing friendship between the the lead samurai he's not even a shogun is he i don't think no no yeah he's he's just a yeah he's a samurai and um and tom cruise's character as well that mm. that's straight he he i mean he says it he said tom cruise said why didn't you kill me why won't you let me die it's like because i seek to understand my enemy and he tells him about his dream about the tiger mm -hmm. so he's recognized that they have something something under the skin is it is akin to each other yeah. and that's a trope that will always get me on board even if you know they've gone oh yes we're a mystical village where everyone is happy and you know the emperor is really the enemy with his railway and his guns and things rather than no the emperor has seen the necessity for japan to join the rest of the world because guess what guns beat swords <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also the, the other thing is like oh it's good samurai were using guns for quite a while Yes, like, not massively accurate ones. <laughs> no, but... not massively, but they were using guns. Like since Nobunaga sort of started to come in, <laughs> you know, yes. but, like the whole shogunate thing, like that—that that was a thing that they've been using for a while. Uh, so the whole like, ah, oh, guns are dishonorable. Like, no, so the samurai have been using guns for a long time. Um, so yeah, uh, so there's lots of things wrong with that movie. Um, I don't really see it as a white saviour trope because he doesn't actually save anyone. He, he bears the sword to the emperor. Yeah. At the end, he takes the... and, and says, you know, this was your, your noble servant up until X, Y and Z. Yeah. And it gives the emperor just that moment of pause of, okay, we do have to move into a modern world. 
but Japan cannot lose its identity. I think yeah. people sometimes also take things out of context because up until comparatively recently, um, a non-Japanese person was not allowed to set foot on Japanese soil. Yeah, It was completely banned. Um, that's why you have uh, Nagasaki. Nagasaki was essentially a man-made or man-enlarged island um, which served as a halfway house for the... Uh, Dutch. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah, the Dutch. The, the um, oh God, the, in, the East India Company yeah. were trading because they wanted to trade, but you absolutely weren't allowed to set foot as a, a white person on Japan itself. It yeah. was too sacred. Yeah. Um, also, you were not allowed to learn Japanese. So anyone caught teaching the, the English or the Dutch or whatever Japanese was put to death. Um, anyone practicing Christianity at all, regardless of race, was put to death mm. in an extremely horrific way. They really wanted to keep cultural purity. And while I, I guess what this does for me is it kind of echoes the, the, the lost homeland feeling for, for, for Ireland and Scotland, whereby yes, you know what, you have to put some of the things aside. You cannot stay unchanging forever because the world will leave you behind. Yeah. And that's essentially the part of the story that I feel they kind of got right, even though everything in the way they framed it was completely wrong. Completely wrong. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I will say as well, they, they, they had some amazing Japanese actors. Oh yeah, as awesome! Part Some of the kids, the like, Some of the yeah, kids were brilliant. But just so you know, as I think it's a, it's a funny film, um, but it, incredibly inaccurate on so many levels. So yeah. Okay, uh, well, I think it's time we wrap this up. Um, this has been a big one. <laughs> it has. I mean, basically, our our personal takeaway points are that mm. you know a careless portrayal of a white MC as a messianic character is it's pretty much always gross but yeah. it is actually a damaging thing we 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 genuinely believe that yeah uh, but you know when you are looking at that context is essential sometimes you need someone who is currently able to access the system to give a voice to those who are excluded from it um this isn't a white saviour narrative. Um, it's just an unfor unfortunate reflection of how you undermine systems of oppression and change hearts and minds. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously we've said that we would like to see more depiction from uh, people of colour characters' perspectives as well. Yes. Um, and it's not to say that everyone who ever managed to find a voice found it with a the assistance of a white person that's no what didn't happen yeah and uh, yeah we are absolutely not saying that we're not turning around saying oh yeah no this has never been done historically before it's just been part it's been one added extra layer which has come between a lot of people of color having their own you know their own voice and breaking through into you know a system which was stacked against them um but yeah, we absolutely do want to see these other stories, but the stories which do involve a white person aren't necessarily a white saviour narrative. Um, yeah. It just depends how it's done and whether it's done properly. Um, yeah. And a lot of the stories, you know, especially if they're really tackling racism or, you know, things like enforced cultural migration, um, they are white stories too. And yes, uh, a lot of 
the white people in those stories are not reflected very well and probably shouldn't be but not every single you know it, it's it's not white people bad other people good it's it's never that simple historically yeah um and again and should... if we create that narrative of white people bad um what that does is that in some way ends up excusing the actions of the past because that wasn't the case it wasn't that there was just this active blindness among sort of white people in in america and stuff like that that was never the case there have always been people both vocal and um you know those who didn't actually have a voice themselves within white communities who were against racism and slavery and things like that and to pretend otherwise is to actually um rewrite just how horrific it was uh because it's to basically say oh that's just the way things were back then and not to basically say no this was a conscious decision that was being made and there were people who were very aware of the fact that it was wrong yeah definitely basically there's there's room for everyone to tell their side of the story here and we would like to see everyone's side of the story yeah absolutely probably our resting point isn't it (laughs) yes i completely agree um okay well it's time for our dissecting dragons recommendation before we go um and this week i have got one for you guys so um i have been uh, sort of before christmas i was watching uh, i've been watching a series i haven't finished it yet um which has a very unfortunate name it's called blue period (laughs) (laughs) i know childish laughter (laughs) i know i know it's a it's a japanese anime which has been on netflix and it's about this kid who is applying for art school and his journey into being an artist and as someone who did art you know in secondary school and then kind of had to drop it and in some ways I always regretted it and obviously I've kept art up as a hobby and I love I still love painting and drawing and photo manipulation and things like that and have used it professionally I really have been enjoying watching this anime um, not least because it's actually taught me a few things about classical art and composition um, and about sort of the struggles of getting into art school which I think will be shared by anyone who's ever tried to get into any kind of art school be that drama be that music etc so I've really been enjoying it I have not finished it yet um, I'm only on the I think the the fifth episode or something like that um but i really am enjoying it it is on netflix well worth checking out for anyone who is interested in art and likes anime it's a slice of life cool i will definitely have to check that out yeah and on that note guys we're gonna say thank you very much for listening as always we'd love to hear your thoughts remember you can get in touch with us via our facebook our twitter or our tumblr both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages for now we'll say bye bye and catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. 
For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.